Hey everyone, before we begin, a quick but sincere thanks for the outpouring of support we've gotten over the past few weeks. As we've reported on what we uncovered happening right here in the city of Greenville on this case, Murder Etc. began as an effort to tell a story that happened in the 1970s. It's turned into a story happening in between each episode as we close out 2019. The work has literally never felt more important than it does right now. So thank you to everyone who has emailed, whispered in our ears, and because this effort isn't cheap, to those of you who've given your financial support, we've been quite frankly amazed and humbled by what you've given. I want to send a special thanks to some of our biggest supporters who, quite frankly, paid for the last few episodes and more with their contributions. Larry Carpenter, Adrian Carter, and Shirley Rosario. Thank you so much. Also, thank you to everyone at Greenville's Endeavor Creative Collaborative Community especially Shannon Wilbanks and Joe Irwin. Thank you for giving me the chance to talk about this effort in your amazing space. We hope that our work here continues to live up to all of your belief in us. And for anyone else who'd like to help, I'll tell you how at the end of the show. But for now, here is episode 23, The Closer. In that block or two that separates Greenville, South Carolina's celebrated downtown from its storied West Greenville streets. Two balls, two strikes, two out. On spring and summer nights, you don't have to listen too hard to hear the unmistakable crack. And the pits went deep dry. Of wood on hard leather. Get out of here! And the roar of the crowd Woo! as a baseball soars over the warning track and onto the railroad tracks just beyond the outfield wall. Charles Wakefield Jr. On the side of West Greenville School, they had a big field and we would play down there sometimes. Never knew about the Greenville Drive, the team's floor field stadium, or its replica of Fenway's Green Monster. Those all came to Greenville long after Wakefield went to death row. But Wakefield, a child of West Greenville, still knew about baseball, or the closest thing he and his friends could come to it. I guess in New York they call it stickball, but we would play with the little pickle sticks because Greenville is textile center of the world. The first 10 times Wakefield used the phrase picker stick, I was certain he was saying pickle stick because I didn't grow up in a textile mill, where just one of the tools that kept Greenville's looms running and its economy booming was something folks called a picker stick. That's a stick that is on the end of a weaving loom that weave cloth, and it pushes the shuttle from one end to the other. And you got one on each end. One stick will push it to the left, and another stick will push it back to the right. Every once in a while, Greenville's kids would find a picker stick thrown away outside a mill. And those kids, Charles Wakefield among them, would turn that stick into a dream that turned them into Jackie Robinson. And we would take the little rubber balls and we would hit, hit the ball with pickle sticks. Over the years, Greenville's baseball fans have watched some of the game's most well-known players. Shoeless Joe Jackson, Tommy Lasorda, 
Tom Glavin, David Justice, Chipper Jones. And today, and the pitch. fans watch the single-A players for the Boston Red Sox work their way toward the show. Today, Greenville's best baseball happens just off Main Street, less than a mile and a half from the Greenville County Courthouse, where, though you'll never hear, take me out to the ball game, you wouldn't be faulted for thinking. You were watching one. To them, it's like a ball game. That is Leonard Brown. They're out to win. They're going to win. And Leonard Brown Jr., who have watched this kind of game play out many times since the older of the two ran for sheriff back in the 1970s. He'd sort of ask you questions that he'd know what he wants you to say. The Browns watched as that game's great strategists won time after time. And by what he's talking to you about, you figure out what he's wanting to say. After drafting the best witnesses they could put on the stand while still believing they were telling the truth. And they'd say, now if you tell me it's a lie, I can't use it. That was his pattern, you know. Using, if you listen to the father and son's game recap, any means necessary to get the witnesses on the home team. Gonna get your kid up here if you don't and put him in jail if you don't figure out what you want to tell me. I ain't gonna tell you what you, I want to hear, but you've got to figure that out. And they'll talk to you till you figure it out. And then, once those witnesses have a spot on the roster, well, as Jack Buck would have said, that's a winner. And how do you figure it out? You're their buddy then. That's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Back in 1993, when Nolan Ryan retired, after a career as one of the toughest, most respected, and wildly successful pitchers to ever tow the rubber, an ESPN reporter asked him if cheating was something he would never do. Ryan laughed and then said, you have to realize that in the game, whether it's a balk move, whether it's a phantom double play, those things are part of the game. And then Ryan said, now, when you say cheating, there's that gray area. I'm Brad Willis. This is Murder, Etc. If you spend enough time around a baseball diamond where every pitch can represent something in life, you can find yourself living in a giant metaphor where life is a game and sometimes your team is whoever shows up to play. I was going to go to trial with what I had. I had McIntyre and I mean she was a very believable and she's a very Christian person. I mean she wouldn't lie if her life and her daughter and everybody else depends on I don't think. This is episode 23 of Murder, Etc. And if you listen to episode 22, you heard about the very Christian Mae McIntyre. She grew up in an orphanage, Salvation Army orphanage. The chief witness against Charles Wakefield Jr., who had to be convinced by her daughter more than eight months after the murders to come forward and testify in the Rufus and Frank Looper murder trial. 
she's such an honest Christian woman that if she's asked, she'll tell it. But she's not going to volunteer it. In 1975, Greenville County's chief prosecutor, Billy Wilkins, decided he was going to go forward with his case against Charles Wakefield Jr. based on May McIntyre's testimony. She was, if you're living in a world of baseball metaphors, Billy Wilkins' starter. And he expected her to throw all nine innings. But in episode 22, you also heard how May McIntyre's son, in 2019, still has a hard time believing his mother saw what she testified she saw. But every time I run up on my mama, same story. So just so we're clear, what is your feeling about whether your mom was there or not there that day? My opinion, my opinion only, mother wasn't there. My mother was not there. Even back in 1975, there were people who questioned Ms. McIntyre's credibility. So, if you were managing the game, what would you do? Your starting pitcher looks tired. The game's on the line. You can hope. Or, you can go to the bullpen and get the guy who couldn't hold up for an entire game. But he's got the stuff to close this one out and send that last batter to the clubhouse. Or the death house. So you climb out of the dugout and you call for. You're not going to forget the name. It's one of those unforgettable names. If you were trying the murder case against Charles Wakefield Jr., you'd be calling for. Wyatt Earp Harper. Wyatt Earp Harper. Wyatt Earp Harper was in his late teens at the time. You're listening to Lynn West. Back in 1975, his job was to make sure people who got arrested in Greenville had an attorney. I interviewed Wyatt Earp. He said, no, I got an attorney. Don't worry about it. Wyatt Earp wasn't even 20 years old. He's kind of skittish at the time. But then again, most of the people I dealt with were kind of skittish when they first get locked up. But Wyatt Earp wasn't new to jail. He'd started his life of crime when he was still a kid. And because it was a life of crime, it'd continue for a long time. Harper had a reputation, had a bad reputation from juvenile court to adult court, spent most of his life in prison, in and out of jail, all kinds of charges against him. This man, Wyatt Earp Harper, was Prosecutor Billy Wilkins' closer because Wyatt Earp had a story that would send Charles Wakefield Jr. to the electric chair. A little more than two years before someone killed the Loopers, Mike Bridges, one of the two lead detectives in the Looper murders case, arrested Wyatt Earp Harper for burglary and weapons charges. And Wyatt Earp Harper went off to the John G. Richards School for Boys, where he stayed until the summer of 1974. Then, in the fall of 1974, Harper and another man robbed a guy of $6 and some change while pointing a 32 caliber pistol at him. After police arrested him, Wyatt Earp gave his signed statement to Jim Christopher, the other lead detective in the Looper murders case. That case against Harper languished in the court system for 10 months 
And in the last days of August, 1975, Judge Frank Epps, the judge in the Looper murders case, gave Wyatt Earp Harper 10 years in prison. That was just a few weeks before Jim Christopher and Mike Bridges got May McIntyre on board. And Billy Wilkins, the prosecutor in the Looper murders case, convinced a grand jury to indict Charles Wakefield Jr. for double murder. And that's when... Here's what good detectives do. Wilkins went to the bullpen. It's what Christopher did on a Saturday now, but before trial. He counted on Jim Christopher, a man who already knew Wyatt Earp, to bring in the closer. Now, Wakefield was a loner. The investigation showed he didn't have many friends. What Christopher and Bridges were trying to do is find a friend that he might have confided in. You know, I killed that lieutenant and the cops are never going to stop looking for me. Something. But you couldn't ever find the friend because he didn't have it to speak of. And because they believed Charles Wakefield Jr. was friendless and confided in no one. So they wanted to try to find out who he'd run with. After indicting Wakefield for murder based on May McIntyre's statement, according to Billy Wilkins, Jim Christopher kept investigating. On a Saturday afternoon, Christopher goes in, he gets the book out, the investigative book, and he starts going back through it, seeing what he's missed, if anything. Up to this point, we can verify everything Billy Wilkins is saying through our research and in the police file. But now, we have to leave the police file and depend on Wilkins' word. And he had done the interview, but somebody had interviewed Wyatt Earp Harper. And Wyatt Earp had, had not admitted to anything, but he says in the statement that he, he'd known Wakefield for a long time, and they used to go out to someplace out here on Augusta Road, the Ghana or something like that. It was a nightclub type thing. So Christopher tracks him down. If this report Christopher found existed, it was not in the police file turned over to Wakefield's attorneys. Regardless, when it came time to track down Wyatt Earp, it wasn't hard. Jim Christopher knew where Wyatt Earp was. Wyatt Earp was in state prison. For the first time, he had been there for two months at the age of 18. And Wyatt Earp would have done just about anything to get out of prison. So, once Christopher touched base, Wyatt Earp decided he had a story to tell. And Wyatt Earp says this, and he testified to it, that he was the lookout while he was there he saw a woman walk down the driveway and she was dressed in a nurse's uniform. Once Jim Christopher found the 18-year-old Wyatt Earp Harper in prison, Wyatt Earp, who could have told this story at any point over the previous 10 months, before he pleaded guilty, according to Billy Wilkins, said he and Wakefield had been partners on the Looper's robbery. And while serving as the lookout, Wyatt Earp said he had seen a woman dressed as a nurse. Of course, it wasn't a nurse's uniform, but to him it was. It was a Salvation Army uniform. And that, in case you haven't been keeping score at home, would make Wyatt Earp Harper the first person out of at least four verified eyewitnesses on January 31st, 1975, to have seen Miss May McIntyre at the Looper Garage that day. And it's worth pointing out None of those four verified eyewitnesses saw Wyatt Earp Harper there either. What happened with Wyatt Earp Harper in the months and years after that will be the subject of future episodes. But what happened in the days and weeks after Jim Christopher 
pulled Wyatt Earp out of a fresh hell in state prison. Well, that's a story you'll want to hear sooner than later. So, that's coming up right after this short break. My name is Chuck Reese. I'm the editor of an online magazine called The Bitter Southerner. And if you've been a hardcore listener of Murder, Etc., you might have heard my name on this show a couple of times. Brad Willis is one of the many writers who has helped us break down misconceptions about the South ever since we started six years ago. And on The Bitter Southerner podcast with Georgia Public Broadcasting, We challenge those stereotypes across the board and paint a very different picture of the American South. Please join me for the Bitter Southerner podcast. You can subscribe for free at gpb.org slash podcast or on your favorite podcast app. Lynn West was just a year into his job, but people already knew who he was. I was going up the stairwell to the get to the top. The guys who got arrested, like Wyatt Earp Harper, knew West as the guy who got you a lawyer. They have to open the gates to the control room. West had already seen Wyatt Earp before. Hadn't been too many months since Wyatt Earp went away to prison. And he was getting ready to come down because they had called him down to be signed out. And according to both Wyatt Earp and Lynn West, There was a day, not too long after a grand jury indicted Charles Wakefield Jr., when West was headed up to the jail, and Wyatt Earp, fresh out of state prison, was headed out of the jail. Wyatt stopped West. He said, Mr. West, I said, yeah. He says, they're getting around to take me over a crossover and and talk to someone. uh, They want me to say certain things and all. It's just not necessarily true. To understand what happens next, you have to understand where Lynn West is coming from or who he is coming from. My mom was a real religious person, brought up religious household, et cetera, et cetera, and tried to bring me up the same way. Lynn West's mom hoped her boy was doing the Lord's work in a place where people needed it the most. She always said, do you ever minister to anybody there? I said, Mom, I got a job to do. I'm not a minister. They got ministers that come in there all the time. But in this moment, where both Wyatt and West say they had this discussion, West said what he thought his mom might say. I said, well, just let God be your guide on what you say and what you do. And that's not maybe the exact words I said, but something similar to that. West was a young man in a new job he'd worked for another three decades. So having no idea what Wyatt Earp thought he was being asked to say, or that it might send a man to death row, West ministered in the best way he knew, unsure whether Wyatt Earp would listen to the God West's mom knew or listen to someone else. West said, let God be your guide. And that's all I said because they were hollering for him to come down the stairwell. And just like that, Wyatt Earp was gone, on his way to, as Wyatt Earp would say later, bear false witness against Charles Wakefield Jr. But before Wyatt Earp Harper admitted to anything about lying, 
he took an oath to tell the truth and told his story at trial about going to West Greenville with Charles Wakefield Jr., looking for a place to rob, and deciding on the Looper Garage. In Wyatt Earp's story, Wakefield decided to kill two men for some pocket money. And as Billy Wilkins tells the story now, and then afterwards, they had a dispute about he thought he was entitled to 50% of the money. Wakefield would give it to him and said he didn't earn it, stuff like that. Then he later retracted his statement, as, as often happens. If you didn't catch that, Wilkins said Wyatt Earp Harper later retracted his statement. As often happens, Wilkins said. Throughout the Murder, Etc. podcast, we've told you this story chronologically, as it happened month by month and year by year. But to fully appreciate all that comes ahead, you should know this. Wyatt Earp Harper says, when he testified for the state to convict Charles Wakefield Jr. and send him to South Carolina's death row, it was all a lie. Something even Eric Gottlieb, an attorney who took on Wakefield's case in 2001, never expected, especially when he read what happened at trial with the very Christian May McIntyre and Wyatt Earp Harper testifying in the same day. And I remember reading the transcript and, and having some reservations, I guess, and, and realizing, well, the only way that this guy didn't do it is if this guy is flat out lying, right? If Wyatt Earp Harper is lying. And number two, uh, May McIntyre is, at best, is honestly mistaken, if not also Oh, being untruthful. Gottlieb came in from out of town. He was a New Yorker in South Carolina, a stranger in a strange land. But he eventually got hold of the police file. Look, it's not rocket science. You read the transcript and then you read the police file, right? That, that was huge. Getting access to that police file. I mean, that was just a gold mine of information that really made it easy to to sort of see what happened see watch it unfold in, in real time by following the documentation back in 2001 and in the years that followed and they let him walk out after i broadcast a report on local television now bridges and chief johnson are calling for a new hearing one that revealed wakefield had been paroled and eventually led to the parole board changing its decision and keeping wakefield in prison gottlieb was still working and part of his work was finding Wyatt Earp Harper. Wakefield's conviction was based primarily on the testimony of one witness. Wyatt Earp Harper. That is Gottlieb's voice. Who testified that he was Wakefield's accomplice in the murders. Early on, Gottlieb had no intention of being Wakefield's attorney. Gottlieb just wanted to make a documentary about the case. After tracking down Wyatt Earp Harper and interviewing him both at his home and in jail, Gottlieb recorded Wyatt Earp saying he was just hoping to get out of the jam he was in. And just about willing to do anything to get out. Wyatt Earp Harper recently admitted, 27 years after the fact, that his testimony against Wakefield was fabricated. And when Gottlieb interviewed Wyatt Earp Harper, Harper said his eventual testimony against Charles Wakefield Jr. had been coached. That's when the coaching got coming in. And Harper named names. Bridges, Wilkins, Christopher. And to play with Bridges, 13 seconds to Billy Wilkins, and Christopher. Harper said on tape 
the cops, and the prosecutor showed him a chart of how the crime went down. And they were showing the chart down of what I spoke of, how we spoke of rain, which way we spoke of rain, and the whole man like that. And Harper said, in the meantime, he was comfortable, including enjoying some time in the motel with a female companion. So after that, they talked to me two or three more times. We went to the motel, you know, they take you to the motel so you can be with your girl, all this kind of good treatment and everything, until the time when it came for me to go to court. When that time came, you know, he sat there in front of me just like you were sitting right now, you know, making sure that I say everything that was told me to say. Wyatt Earp Harper said one more thing. The guy he said killed the loopers, the guy he sent to death row, Wyatt Earp said, he had never seen Charles Wakefield Jr. until he walked into the courtroom. That was the first time I ever seen him in my life. It was the last time I ever seen him. For Gottlieb, a young attorney on what he felt was a righteous cause, Wyatt Earp's admission that he had lied on the stand and his claim that the detectives and prosecutor coached him on how to testify. It seemed like a home run. To hear from Wyatt, to have him recant, that certainly was huge in terms of um, finding out what, how this really played out and, and opening my eyes to the, the possibility that things were not done above board and the investigation and the prosecution were not handled properly the way I think I always believed it would have been, and I think most people in the general public would assume that prosecutions and, and investigations are, are handled. Lynn West remembers the moment too. In 2004, when Gottlieb finally got Harper in front of a judge to admit he lied. Harper went in there and basically recanted everything he had told the police at the time. Wyatt Earp told Gottlieb he had told Lynn West in 1975 what was happening with Bridges and Christopher, and that West had told him to let God guide his decision. But when Gottlieb went to West, West says he felt pressured by a county employee to keep his mouth shut. And after so many years, he couldn't remember exactly what he had said to Wyatt Earp so many years before. But once he watched that post-conviction relief hearing, I just flat couldn't remember exact words for words until after that PCR hearing had already gone. And then it just kind of, for some reason, the light bulb in my head just clicked on and said, yeah, I did say that. And how did that happen? West started thinking about the sequence of events. The night another infamous in-the-know prisoner named Arthur Fast Eddie Williamson told him Wakefield was innocent. Fast Eddie stopped me and said, uh, Wakefield said he didn't he didn't kill Frank Looper and just he just looked at me and grinned and that's all he said. And Wyatt Earp telling him what he did that night at the jail. They want me to say certain things and all it's just not necessarily true. And then feeling pressured by a supervisor to not help Gottlieb. I said I'll tell him what I know but I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna lie just because you don't want me to I was getting the reference he didn't want me to talk to him at all. That's what I was getting from him. So, in 2004, West did the same thing he did in the early part of his career, when he noticed how the scales of justice tilted. That makes you wonder, is this really fair and balanced? 
and that's when I, I looked at it for a different set of glasses. I took off the sunglasses and then I put on the clear glasses and then I could see. I just saw it differently. It just didn't seem to be fair anymore. Though he would spend his later years dealing with something heavy on his conscience about it, Wes did in 2004, as he did in 1975. He hoped the system would work. After about a year, just devoting myself of that emotions and just saying, do your job. You're not, a pro you're not a prosecutor, nor are you a defense attorney. So just do what you're supposed to do and, and move on, and, and hopefully everything else would take its place. Everything took its place. Wyatt Earp Harper took the stand and said he had lied to put Wakefield in prison. A judge heard the state of South Carolina accuse Wyatt Earp of recanting just to make money in a movie deal. And Charles Wakefield Jr., took his place back in prison after a judge ruled Wyatt Earp's recantation wasn't enough to give Charles Wakefield Jr. a new trial. Once again, everything was in its place, just as it was intended in 1975. After spending his first 25 years in prison, it was like a story. Charles Wakefield Jr. had lived through a lot of nights thinking about the police and prosecutors. We're going to tell this story about Charles Wakefield. Nights Wakefield stared at his prison ceiling. How he went into the Looper's garage and how he robbed and killed the elder Looper and killed his son. Trying to figure out how he nearly ended up in the electric chair. And they planned it. In part because of an admitted liar named Wyatt Earp. They had 13 months to plan it. The details, how they would conspire to kill me. Wakefield could recite the script aloud. They called his name, you know, like the old West days. You know, Wyatt Earp Harper. How Harper walked in. He had on a gold two-piece suit and Wakefield felt like he was in the middle of some old western. Wyatt Earp Harper, when I first heard that name, I thought they was talking about a fictional character. Then Wakefield listened to that story Harper told and helped convince a jury. A man with almost no criminal record shot two innocent people in the back of the head just behind their left ears as part of a hastily planned midday robbery. Harper's story came together several weeks after Greenville County indicted Charles Wakefield Jr. for murder. Nevertheless, Wyatt Earp got a spot on the stand, and the witnesses police interviewed on the day of the murders, the people who never saw Wyatt Earp or Miss May McIntyre, they never got a chance to take the stand. You might remember what Leonard Brown said about just one of those witnesses. They was talking about that Looper trial. She was telling me that I sat up there during that trial and they never did call me as a witness. And then I asked her a question too, well, why didn't they call you? She said, I don't know. So I sat up there and said, uh, I didn't think that was the same guy that I saw. And I immediately, knowing what they was looking for, I said, well, I, that's why they didn't call you. <laughs> I immediately knew that's why they didn't call her because they wasn't looking for nobody that said it didn't look like them. They didn't want the truth, they wanted to put somebody away. That is one man's opinion. 
That is Leonard Brown's opinion. Leonard Brown, a man who has a complicated history with 1970s prosecutor Billy Wilkins, and still longs for a much more old-school version of putting on a case and the old-school prosecutors who tried those cases. He never tried to get you to make no evidence. Just tell me what happened. Never questioned a witness before time, nothing like that. But it was altogether a different ball game after Wilkins got in there. Whether you believe Leonard Brown doesn't change the fact after Billy Wilkins took over as prosecutor, the way Greenville County prosecuted its cases did, in fact, change dramatically. That change is what we would call today preparing for trial. And this is, a, this is a true statement, not a criticism, but it's true. Billy Wilkins says he learned early on to make his case. He had to make sure he knew and could document what witnesses were going to say before they took the stand. Because witnesses, they could turn on you if you let them. Many times witnesses will listen or learn of if they're sequestered in the state's case. And then if they have not given a statement, they will then conform their new testimony that will somehow weave its way out or provide an explanation for the state's case, even though they're purging themselves. Wilkins insisted detectives get a signed statement from the witnesses so they couldn't flip on him once they took the stand. We did that so many times when witnesses would get on the stand for the defense, having made a long page and a half, two-page statement to the police of some neutral person just typing down what they say. It was devastating in the courtroom for them to try to explain why I said the sun set, now I'm saying the sun was rising, you know. So the police made doubly sure Wyatt Earp Harper couldn't back out of his story. That story first came together on November 19, 1975. In a statement, Wyatt Earp gave to lead detectives Jim Christopher and Mike Bridges. And then for reasons that are sort of difficult to explain, the story came together again three days later in a different statement with more detail, different detail, more damning, convincing detail. Wyatt Earp eventually said both of those statements had been fed to him by detectives and that both were lies. But as you know by now, if the Looper trial was a baseball game, Wyatt Earp Harper was the closer. And as he tells it, his strikeout pitch was telling a lie on a man he'd never met. That was the first time I ever seen him in my life. It was the last time I ever seen him. Lie or not, it meant the same thing for Charles Wakefield Jr. A trip to death row. To look at Wyatt Earp Harper today is to look at a smiling 62-year-old man who could just as easily be the guy who bags your groceries or sits beside you as your lawyer while you sign a contract. But the vision Charles Wakefield Jr. remembered for so long he had on a gold two-piece suit is the man who put his hand on a Bible, swore to tell the truth, and used his testimony to sign a death warrant. Wyatt Earp Harper and the bearing he had on my life was one of the most destructive forces. He is my worst nightmare on two feet. He really is. 
Wyatt Earp remained a nightmare. His voice nearly killed Charles Wakefield Jr. But years later, Wyatt Earp used a gun on another man. In 2010, Wyatt Earp, a heroin dealer by that point, got annoyed with a man who wanted to buy $30 worth of drugs with $15. According to Wyatt Earp's prosecutor, Wyatt Earp got fed up, pushed the man away, and shot him in the back. state of South Carolina called it manslaughter. Wider will get out of prison in 2021. There was a day in 2018, Charles Wakefield Jr. was in the front seat of my truck as I looked for a quiet place to interview him away from the crowds that made him uncomfortable. I drove around on a busy Greenville day, frustrated that everything was so crowded. And at one point, I pointed to a softball field I'd played on many years before. Yeah, I love playing that game. And the one-time death row inmate, now in his 60s, riding alongside me in a Ford F-150, looked for a moment like that child of West Greenville, who would grab a picker stick from the mill and smash home runs across the vacant lot. I don't hit home runs, but I hit the ball. While he was in prison, Wakefield couldn't stomach the basketball courts. They got too violent for him. But he found peace on prison softball teams. When I get up to hit, they put their back against the fence. <laughs> he channeled his confusion and anger and hurt into putting the barrel on the ball, just like he'd swung the picker stick a half a century earlier. That championship game we won. And way too many years later, Wakefield found a senior softball league. I hit a, uh, a triple with the bases loaded. Killed him. Where he won a championship, doing something no one on the field expected him to do. If you watch baseball these days, you know about the shift. About teams that know how a hitter can hit and can't. How a man sometimes can't help but pull the ball in a certain direction. Down his power alley. So the defense shifts almost all of their squad to the most likely place on the field the ball will go. In that championship game, Charles Wakefield Jr. surprised everyone. The opposite field. Oh, I hit it the right field. I didn't hit it to uh, my power alley. I went back door on him. Took the bite out the dog. <laughs> Dad did it, Dad did it. That was, it was never. It's a surprise to hear joy like that from a man who believes a conspiracy of powerful people tried to put him to death and ultimately took 35 years of his life. But just like going opposite field on that squad of unsuspecting senior softball players, if you talk to him long enough, Wakefield will surprise you in a much more meaningful way. I'm going to be honest about this. For a long time, I thought I couldn't. It's not a home run or anything he learned at the prison softball yard. It's something Charles Whitfield Jr. learned in church. Not Annie Savoy's Church of Baseball in Bull Durham, but a church much more meaningful for Wakefield, where he learned how to survive by offering grace to Wyatt Earp Harper, a man who helped ruin his life. Even though he did, still got to turn around and forgive him. 
Wakefield's greatest power, maybe the only power he's ever really had, is forgiveness. And I prayed about it and I prayed about it. And God told me, in, in order for you to be free, you got to forgive people. Harper was so instrumental in putting me in prison. Well, I understood that in order for me to, to grow and be a better person, that I had to forgive Harper. Wakefield had a lot of time to think about it. How Wyatt Earp was 18 years old, in a real prison for the first time, desperate to get out, and a Greenville police detective came calling. For me to understand why did he help destroy a man's life would help me with the healing process that I got to go through. And even if the reason is, is not a very legitimate one, you know, if he says, well, you know, I did it to get myself out of a little problem. Wyatt Earp's little problem was a 10-year prison sentence. And if what he said later was true, he believed he'd be free to see his 20s if he could come out of the bullpen and close out the game. Harper was the closer, a rookie with a killer pitch. Because he was young. He was dealing with people who were, had a greater awareness of shrewdness beyond anybody's imagination. So Wakefield put himself in the spikes of an 18-year-old rookie and asked himself, if you could scuff the ball just a little, work between that part of the game and the gray area Nolan Ryan talked about, throw just one pitch and get out, what would you do? And he had to deal with him. He dealt with him the best way he could. He tried to deal out. And he dealt out. Thanks for listening to the 23rd episode of Murder, Etc. We just gave you a glimpse of how Wyatt Earp Harper ended up testifying against Charles Wakefield Jr. But the Wyatt Earp Harper story isn't even close to finished. And if you think you've heard the most shocking thing about his role in this case, just wait until we get to the trial. While we work on those upcoming episodes, another quick thanks to Greenville's Endeavor, which is an absolutely amazing co-working space in the heart of downtown Greenville. I felt really at home there when I needed a place to work or hide. The folks there can give you a place to work for a day or as long as you need. Learn more about it at EndeavorGreenville.com. Endeavor has been beyond kind to me and the show, and so have many of you. We've been so encouraged by the number of donations we've gotten through PayPal and Venmo and through our Patreon site for the Amateurs Etc. group. And if there's anybody out there who hasn't donated yet and wants to help keep the lights on here at Murder Etc. headquarters, you can send donations to PayPal dot me slash murder etc or via venmo to the murder etc account and if you'd like to donate via patreon and get your behind the scenes access with our amateurs etc group we have links to that on the front page of our website murderetcpodcast.com but for now we're going back to work digging on what's happening at the greenville police department today and going to work on episode 24 here's just a little bit of what you'll hear then Once the police had all they needed to convict Charles Wakefield Jr., it was time to prepare for the trial that could send one of Greenville's young black men to the South Carolina electric chair. It all happened at the Greenville County Courthouse. 
There were two bathrooms on the right-hand side. They both said white men and white women on them. Then, when they took that sign down, they took the stencils off, but because of how old the doors were for a period of time, they removed stencils, made it still show white men and white women on the bathroom until they replaced the door. Going through the pre-trial motions on the next Murder Etc.